In the past, we have seen incredible miracles when men and women were willing to exert faith and willing to turn their hearts back to scripture and willing to fight with everything they possessed for truth to be preserved. We live at a turning point in history. One day, generations are going to look back to this time and they're going to say, did you preserve the covenant? Did you preserve what all of those men and women bled and died for? Or did you let it die? The story of the tree of life is how we as Israel got lost and how we get back on track. The Lord is the master teacher, and we see this powerfully in Nephi and Lehi's vision of the tree of life. The Lord doesn't just use symbolism. He doesn't just say, oh, the tree of life is a symbol of love and the mists of darkness are temptations, but he actually gives us examples. What does love look like? What are the temptations of the devil through history? So he gives us very specific examples. Nephi is given a guided tour through the vision of the tree of life. He is given to understand that the interpretation is the love of God, but he doesn't stop there. What is the love of God? What does that even mean? In verse 16, we see here, quote, And he said unto me, Knowest thou the condescension of God? This is, of course, the Spirit speaking with Nephi as he's teaching him. And so he asks Nephi, he says, Do you understand God's condescension? Do you understand what this is? And Nephi responds, he says, And I said unto him, I know that he loveth his children, but nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. And the angel said unto me, Behold the Lamb of God, yea, even the Son of the Eternal Father. So Nephi is seeing Jesus Christ, right? And then the angel asks him, Do you know the meaning of the tree which your father saw? And Nephi answers him saying, Yea, it is the love of God which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men, wherefore it is the most desirable of all things. So from these verses, we learn a few things. First, we see Jesus Christ condescend. And we understand that when Jesus Christ condescends, that is what real love is. But what, what do we mean when we say Jesus Christ condescends? Here's where the powerful symbolism kicks in. So in 1 Nephi 11, what does Nephi see specifically? What does it mean that Jesus Christ condescends? Well, he sees his mortal ministry. He sees Jesus Christ ministering to the people, but not just ministering. He sees him enduring, being cast out and mocked and belittled. He sees him healing the sick. He sees him casting out devils. He sees him living a life, laying down his life every day to help others. And then he sees Jesus Christ being judged and, of course, slain and crucified. And the reason why this is critical is because we talk a lot about how Jesus Christ died for us and how he suffered in the garden. But how often do we talk about how he lived? How often do we talk about how Jesus Christ is our exemplar? He comes down from a very royal place in in heaven, he's recognized. People know who he is. They respect him. He's a leader. He's a prince. He's a king. But he comes to earth as a nobody. 
And what does he spend his entire life doing? He spends his entire life sacrificing his own health, his own will to do what the father asked him to do. And that is the power of Jesus Christ. That is the power of his love. That is the power of the true atonement. Because if we want to be able to return home ourselves, if we want to be able to become clean, if we want to overcome the world, we have to do what he did. And that means we have to live like him. And that is why we need the example of Jesus Christ. That is the power of the tree of life. We see this in Ether chapter 12. This is Moroni speaking. And Moroni says, I remember that thou, speaking of Jesus Christ, I remember that thou hast said that thou hast loved the world, even unto the laying down of thy life for the world, that thou mightest take it again to prepare a place for the children of men. And now I know that this love which thou hast had for the children of men is charity. Right? We are commanded to have charity. If each of us in our individual lives have charity, our lives are going to reflect Jesus Christ's life. That's why we need to study his life. We need to sh- study his way. Moroni continues, Except men shall have charity, they cannot inherit that place which thou hast prepared in the mansions of thy father. So Jesus Christ comes down and he shows the way and he makes it very clear. But then what do both Nephi and Lehi see next? They see these mists of darkness. They say, and it came to pass that there arose a great mist of darkness, yea, even an exceedingly great mist of darkness, insomuch that they who had commenced in the path did lose their way that they wandered off and were lost, right? So Jesus Christ, he lives this life. He gives the example. He shows the way. And then this mist comes up to obscure so that people who are trying to be like Jesus Christ, they're, they're trying to look at him. Somehow they become lost. They don't understand the way anymore. Well, what does this mean? What, what are these mists of darkness? We find out what these mists of darkness are by going to what Nephi sees. What does he see? He sees the dark ages in the history of this earth. He sees an apostate church arise corrupt the scriptures, corrupt the doctrine, and put to death anyone who resists, anyone who says, wait a minute, this isn't the real Jesus Christ. This isn't the real Godhead. Wait a minute. What you're doing contradicts the scriptures. They kill them and they silence their voice. And that leads to great mists of darkness. And these are not just spiritual mists. These are also very temporal mists. And if you think about the dark ages, what was that time period like? It was barbaric. There was a lack of scientific advancement. You also have situations with serious disease, plagues like the Black Death, and just a lot of superstition and fear. The people were living in terror and fear because they didn't have knowledge. They didn't understand truth. And we know that so many records were destroyed. Um, History was annihilated and, and attempted to be wiped out. And why did all of this happen? Why did the earth sink into this decline? Well, for a simple fact, there was no God. And the understanding of who Jesus Christ was was completely obscured. And what happens to the saints in that day? We talked about this in lesson two. But Nephi talks about how the saints are slain. They're tortured. 
they're bound down, they're brought down in captivity, they're destroyed. Um, there is a great power, um, almost like a communism, similar to communism in our day, but during the dark ages, um, that is murdering for the sake of wealth and popularity and immorality. You have Nephi using the phrase out of captivity. He emphasizes that phrase five times to describe the fleeing of these persecuted righteous Israelites uh, from Europe. It's a time of oppression and it is a time of darkness. We talked again more about details of this in lesson two, so you can go there for the details, but these are the myths of darkness. And, and the reason why this is important is because we can read the tree of life and we can interpret it however we want, right? We can be like, oh, well, myths of darkness, maybe it's um, pornography or maybe it's uh, these different temptations in our day. But Nephi is giving us a clear insight into what God believes is important. From the Lord's perspective, what are the myths of darkness? And the myths of darkness is the removal of scripture from society. It is the attack on anyone who tries to get scripture into the language and access of the common people. It is the destruction and persecution of righteous Israel uh, throughout Europe that had been scattered there. And it's this battle throughout the dark ages as these righteous saints are trying to hold on to the truth and they're trying to keep it alive versus this apostate power, both political and ecclesiastical, in persecuting this the struggle against light and darkness. That is the mist. And the reason why it's important is because that mist wasn't truly shattered until Joseph Smith came. And in many ways, we are still trying to fight against that mist today. There is a beautiful monument that exists down in South Africa that I want to share because I feel like as we're discussing this vision that Nephi had, this monument erected in honor of the French Huguenots really perfectly captures um, this message of coming out of captivity and breaking these myths of darkness. So this statue was erected in 1948 to commemorate all of the French Protestants that were persecuted during the 1500s. Um, they were called Huguenots, and the name is believed to have derived from Dutch and German origins, meaning men who had to meet secretly to study the Bible and make covenants. Interesting, that emphasis on covenants, right? Um, covenants is a theme. If you study the Scottish Covenanters, if you study these righteous reformers, they had this draw and this pull to covenants, which is very similar to Nephi and Lehi, of course, and Joseph Smith. So the Huguenot movement was essentially a freedom fighting movement. They fought wars in France for years, and they estimate that approximately two to four million were killed during that time period, just during the 1500s alone. And most of those persecuted people had to leave. They had to flee and they spread all over the world. Uh, some came to America, some came to South Africa and other places. So if you look at this statue and you think of Nephi's vision, you're going to notice some striking parallels and similarities, even though it was not designed by Latter-day Saints. So in this statue, you see a woman um, who is a central female figure, essentially representing religious freedom. And she's holding a Bible in one hand and a broken chain in the other, right? 
What does Nephi say? They're coming out of captivity. So she's holding this broken chain and this Bible symbolizing that the Bible has helped her to break the chains of oppression. And she's casting off this cloak symbolizing oppression. She's leaving it behind and she's standing atop this globe, this symbol that she has found freedom through the scriptures. She's overcome the world. She's overcome Lucifer and all of the obstacles that exist in this mortal temporal existence. On her dress, she has the Florida lease, which is a symbol of nobility. It's a symbol of character. Um, if you're a Latter-day Saint and you have studied more deeply into this symbol, you understand it's also a symbol of priesthood bloodline um, that was hidden and preserved during the Dark Ages. And on the globe, you see symbols of building a new culture, right? So these reformers, they were taking scripture, they were through God's grace and through God's miraculous preservation, overcoming these foes and these political governments that were trying to destroy them in the old world. And they were coming to the new world and building a new culture. And that culture is symbolized on this globe. It has the Bible as a symbol of their faith, um, the harp as a symbol of art and culture, right? Because as Christians, we don't just reform religion or church. Uh, it falls into every area, our art and our music um, becomes improved and more in line with our covenant heritage. There is corn and a grapevine for agriculture. You have silk and a spinning wheel for industry. And then in front of the statue is water, symbolizing just the peace that was found after heavy persecution and new life. Think of baptism and entering into those covenants. And then also on site, they have the motto of the Reformation, after darkness comes light. This is the message of Nephi's vision of the tree of life, where these mists of darkness come. They try to destroy everything Jesus Christ stood for. They try to destroy the path. But by pressing forward and clinging to the iron rod, clinging to scripture, men and women were able to break those chains of captivity and they were able to find their way to the tree of life. This is literally what Nephi saw, right? First Nephi 13, and the angel said unto me, behold the formation of a church, which is most abominable above all other churches, which slayeth the saints of God, yea, and tortureth them and bindeth them down and yoketh them with a yoke of iron and bringeth them down into captivity. And Nephi says, And it came to pass that I beheld the Spirit of God that it wrought upon other Gentiles. And they went forth out of captivity upon the many waters, right? These are the pilgrims, the Puritans, the Huguenots, the Quakers, the Scottish Covenanters. And he says, And I beheld the Spirit of the Lord that it was upon the Gentiles, and they did prosper and obtain the land for their inheritance. Notice Nephi's perspective on the early colonization of America. In, in a world today where you can pick up any textbook and are, the early colonists of America are really mocked and belittled, from Nephi's perspective, from the Lord's perspective, they were righteous. They had the spirit and they prospered and obtained the land, the promised land of America for their inheritance, just as Lehi and Nephi did before them. Nephi continues, he says, I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles who had gone forth out of captivity did humble themselves before the Lord, and the power of the Lord was with them. 
Um, compare this with how Nephi later describes our day, where he says, you've all gone astray, even the humble followers, you're just struggling. Um, Nephi doesn't have very kind words to say about us in our day. And yet when he's talking about the early colonists, he says, oh yes, they were humble. The spirit was with them. The power of the Lord was with them. We really need to take note of that. Uh, we can often feel superior and uh, belittling, as I mentioned, to so many of the Puritans and pilgrims. But from the Lord's perspective, from the prophetic perspective, they knew what they were doing. They had inspiration. They weren't perfect. They didn't have the restoration of the gospel yet, but they succeeded in ways that we need to look back to them um, and do better ourselves. Nephi says, I beheld that their mother Gentiles were gathered together upon the waters and upon the land also to battle against them. What is this? This is the Revolutionary War, right? And Nephi says, I beheld that the power of God was with them and also that the wrath of God was upon all those that were gathered together against them to battle. I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles that had gone forth out of captivity were delivered by the power of God out of the hands of all other nations. How was the Revolutionary War won? If you talk to the History Channel, it was because of George Washington's arrogance, but his military expertise, or maybe an alliance with France, or maybe some other, you know, happenstance or chance victory. But if you read Nephi's account, it is because the power of God was stepping in, intervening to save Israel in the last days, and they were delivered. A story that not many have heard that is a perfect example of this occurred in 1746. This is actually before the Revolutionary War took place. It was during the French and Indian War. And there was a duke, a French duke, who sent the largest armada to approach American shores to that date. Um, and he came with this huge fleet of ships with orders to burn every American harbor, sparing no life. Uh, this was during the time when the colonies were owned by England, uh, but England and the colonies were at war against the French and the Indians. And so this duke comes. They're, they're going to wipe out America. America doesn't stand a chance. These colonists do not stand a chance against this army. And so the governor of Boston proclaimed a day of fasting and prayer. And they met together, all of the people, at the Old South Meeting House in Boston. You can actually go see this uh, meeting house today. Hundreds, hundreds gathered. And they were literally on their knees pleading with God for their life. <laughs> this, this was the end. <laughs> and there is an account of this near disaster uh, where the minister got up and he just pleaded with God, deliver us from the enemy. And he told the Lord, send thy tempest upon the waters, raise thy right hand, scatter the ships of our tormentors, drive them hence, uh, right? They, they don't have the ability to fight for themselves, so they're pleading with God to defend them. And as those hundreds of men and women were praying in Boston, the sky began darkening and a huge storm unleashed. The storm was so severe that the bell began swinging on its own. And so the people, they ran for cover and the storm eventually subsided and the French fleet never showed up. So eventually there was a sloop that was sent out, the rising sun, to find out what happened to the fleet. Where is it? 
And what they discovered was absolutely astonishing. They discovered that two of the largest frigates in that fleet had sunk in the storm and the entire fleet was nearly lost. After the storm had passed, this French army was hit with another disaster. Nearly all of the sailors and the soldiers got sick with scurvy or some other kind of disease. And the admiral that was leading this entire expedition that was going to destroy every colony killed himself rather than face the dishonor of what happened to him. 4,000 were sick, another 2,000 were dead, and not even 1,000 of that brave army remained still on their feet. And the people, you can imagine the tears they must have shed and the thanksgiving in their hearts. The day of thanksgiving was proclaimed, and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow even wrote a poem commemorating this miracle called the Ballad of the French Fleet. It's this miracle and others that Nephi saw in vision. In 1 Nephi 13.30 when he says, Nevertheless, thou beholdest that the Gentiles who have gone forth out of captivity and have been lifted up by the power of God above all other nations, upon the face of the land which is choice above all other lands. This was God intervening. These are the events that God believes is important in our history. And again, if you look at history textbooks today, how many of us have heard the story? How many of our children understand the miracles that happened and why they happened? What are the covenants? Why did God intervene? This is what God believes is important in our history. The rest of the insignificant events that everyone makes documentaries and movies and talks about to the Lord isn't that important. This is the history we need to restore in our schools and our curriculum. 